Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Welcome to episode 26 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts, and today's episode is part one in a two-part series that is devoted to the subject of grace. And so for this week and next, we're going to be exploring together what the grace of God is and how grace operates in our life. And we'll start with a reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Here ends the reading. What an amazing way for the Gospel of John to begin with an announcement, a proclamation that from the very fullness of God, from the fullness of Jesus Christ, we have all received, every last one of us, grace upon grace. And as a priest, as a preacher, if I had just one message I could share, only one sermon I could preach, this would no doubt be it, that Christianity from beginning to end is all about grace, not about what we do for God, but rather about what God has done for us, not about our journey to perfection, but about God showering us with forgiveness in the midst of our imperfection, and not even about some sacrifice we make for God, but about a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice that Christ has made for us. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That is the Christian gospel. And let me tell you why I know this matters. Exhortation and admonition, telling people what to do and who to be and what the right thing is, this can modify external behavior in the short run. But the wisdom of the gospel is that only grace can change hearts and deep-seated unhealthy patterns of human behavior in the long run. Now, I've been on the grace train for a long time, but this was not always true for me, and so I thought I'd tell you a little story about when I woke up to the importance of grace in my own life and ministry. It was my senior year at Virginia Theological Seminary, and I was working on my honors thesis under the tutelage of Kate Sondriger. Kate has the sharpest theological mind of anyone I've ever met, and she's a woman of prayer and integrity. And because I really looked up to Kate, I had this very strong desire to please her. 
And so I chose a topic for my thesis that I knew that she had researched, and that's the Christian doctrine of sanctification, which seeks to articulate how it is that the Spirit makes us more like Christ from the inside out. And so the way it would work, every single week, I'd give Kate a chapter of my thesis, and then we would sit in her office She would read the chapter in front of me, and then we'd have a conversation about my thinking. Kate would maybe give me a few books to read and offer some suggestions that could improve my work, and that's how our relationship worked and our meetings went week after week. Well, pretty early on, I think it may have been our second meeting together, as Kate read my manuscript, I could tell that she was not pleased with the direction I was taking. Personally, I thought I was making a pretty airtight case for what we had to do to be sanctified before God, and that I was writing quite brilliantly on the importance of prayer and practice and piety. But as Kate read my words, she grimaced and frowned and shook her head. And so naturally, I feared that she had lost my essay, and was reading someone else's by mistake. But of course, after taking a closer look, the essay she was reading said Newton on it. And so I just had to ask her, Kate, what is wrong? Am I saying something heretical? Are my sources inadequate? I have worked so hard on this. I've got one goal in life right now, Kate, and that is to bring you something acceptable. And so what is it that I'm doing wrong? And Kate looked at me with so much tenderness and also with a lot of firmness. And she said something I'll never forget. You're a good writer, she said, and your logic is sound. But what you're missing, she said, what you're missing is the how much more. Now, I did not know it at the time, but this was a clear reference to verses 15 and 17 of Romans chapter 5, where Paul writes, For if the many died by the sin of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came through Jesus Christ overflow to the many? And then, for if by the sin of the one man death reigned, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace reign through the one man, Jesus Christ? What you are missing, she told me, is the how much more. This was Kate's way of telling me that a priest's job is not to point the finger and tell the flock what they need to do, but rather to point with joy, confidence, and hope to what God has done. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And so for today and also for next week, this will be our theme that we're going to explore together, the grace of God and how this fullness of grace that we receive is ultimately what we believe heals hearts and changes lives. And again, we're going to start the conversation this week, and we're going to continue it next week. And so let me just start by saying a word or two about how I see ministry as the rector of St. Michael's Episcopal Church. One of the things that I just long to do as a preacher and a teacher, one of the contributions I hope to make to the church is to 
offer people a grace-infused map of the Christian spiritual life that I believe people are just desperate for, a map that rings true to people's lived experience of what it means to be a fragile human being in a broken and sometimes harsh world. I mean, right, we all know that experience of feeling so weak and overpowered by the reality that life is big and we are not big. For instance, the coronavirus has elevated our anxiety and made us feel our vulnerability. And so I just assume that we all know what it's like to feel weak and overpowered by the reality that life is big and we are not big. We all know that experience. And so as a preacher, I want to offer a map of our faith that takes this basic human experience into account. But at the same time, I want the map I offer to be consistent not only with Jesus's teachings, but with the way our Lord lived his life. Because the truth is, and I imagine this is true if you're taking the time to listen to this podcast episode, but the truth is I genuinely long for people to experience something of God's boundless love in their life, and I also know it's possible. I want people to experience something of God's boundless love in their life. And I want that inner experience of God's love to flow out into our world in such a way that our presence makes a positive love-spreading difference in our families, in our communities, and in the world. But of course, what we find is that the world's strategy for bringing about change, it's all about doing and achieving, and fighting, and mastering, and being in control. And of course, no one doubts that there is a time and a place for such things, but if our deepest desire is to experience God's love and then to be a conduit through which that same love flows out of us to other people, well, that just doesn't happen as we double down on doing, and achieving, and fighting, and mastering, and being in control. I mean, right, a hammer is a great tool if you need to fasten a nail in a piece of wood, but if your goal is something other than that, a hammer may not be the right tool. And in the same way, when it comes to discipleship and making a love-spreading difference in society, doing, efforting, achieving, trying really, really hard, these may not be the right tool. Or how do we approach the Christian life? Is there something out there to guide us? Not seven easy steps or five spiritual laws or another book of spiritual practices, but is there a map, a picture of our soul's inner landscape that can help us understand what the grace of God looks like and how it changes our behavior? And as we look for that map, I think we need to start by being honest about the human condition Because, you know, here we are in the midst of this pandemic, and life has changed in some form for all of us. We can't do everything we want to do, and there is a lot we care about that falls outside of our conscious control. And so the coronavirus has really reminded us that we are needy and dependent, and that we're not the masters of our fate. And so how is it that weak and needy people make a love-spreading difference in the world? 
And I'm going to ask that question again because I think it's so important. How is it that weak and fragile people, people with the best of intentions, but who often lack the moral resolve or the energy or the time or the physical capacity to live into those intentions, how do such beings and their glorious human fragility make a love-spreading difference in the world? Now, to answer that question, I do need to make a little bit of a confession. Sometimes when it's been a really busy week and Friday rolls around and I'm tired and I don't want to work anymore and I don't have a sermon ready, I'll look back to see what I preached on three, maybe six years ago. And then after giving that sermon a really good read, I get depressed and I think to myself, I really should have been fired for preaching that sermon. Now, I'm obviously joking a little bit, but whenever I do look back and I get that feeling, nine times out of ten, it's not because the sermon was bad, but because I failed to honor the truth that as human beings, we have some real limitations, and that the world we live in can leave us feeling inescapably breathless and powerless and tired. And so what I used to offer as a preacher was motivation, inspiration, a direction to travel, maybe a few tools for the journey, and I quickly learned two important lessons. First, I learned that whenever the average person came to church, they didn't just have a full plate. No, they usually showed up with about five or six plates, all of which were overflowing, and for the most part, they felt very guilty and exhausted and frankly scared that they couldn't do the impossible and keep all those plates spinning. And the impact of my motivational speech that I like to call a sermon was not to make their load lighter, even though Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No, the emotional impact of my sermon was to give them another plate and to remind them of how important this plate was because this was the God plate. And like a coach with his whistle motivating the varsity football team, I basically told them that their call as a Christian was to get out there and to play hard for God. In other words, I'd give them a metaphorical plate, a task, or maybe some sort of charge, and then I'd say, God expects you to keep this plate spinning. Now, I never actually said those words, but the emotional imprint of my sermon would always leave people feeling a little disheartened. To be told that God expects you to keep this plate spinning, in the long run, that is a very disempowering message. And so a lesson I learned very early on as a preacher was that repetitive, consistent doses— of spiritual motivation is often the most demotivating thing in the Christian life. It may inspire or stir our emotions in the short run, but in the long run, trying to improve ourselves spiritually exasperates fear, exhaustion, and contempt. Because when told to keep that plate spinning, to be the shining example for the world, one of two things will usually happen. We'll either fail and feel shame 
And we know that shame is positively correlated with all the outcomes that we as Christians have taken a vow to work against, addiction, violence, loneliness, etc. And so we're either going to fail and feel shame, but of course there's always the possibility that we will convince ourselves we've succeeded. And whenever we start to believe our own press, when we think of ourselves as a spiritual success, doing for God what only the few and elite spiritual beings are capable of doing, well, that also leads to all sorts of spiritual messiness. But again, the irony is that our effort at progression leads to regression. Because whether we're celebrating our imagined spiritual success or lamenting what spiritual failures we imagine ourselves to be, the focus in both cases is on us and not on a crucified Lord who died for us and who invites us to receive love before he ever exhorts us to give love to other people and to receive grace before he ever tells us to offer grace to other people. And so if our job isn't to motivate one another, to pressure one another, to lean on one another, to get our act together and make the world a better place, if that's not what grace is, if that's not how grace works, then what is grace? And how does grace work? And those are the questions we'll lean into together next week. Let us pray. O God, the Father of all, whose Son commanded us to love our enemies, lead them and lead us from prejudice to truth. Deliver them and deliver us from hatred, cruelty, and revenge. And in your good time, enable us all to stand reconciled before you, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.